Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's start with Greg Battle, shall we? BNP Paribas, U.S. Head of Equity and Derivative Strategy. Good morning to you, Greg. Good morning. Have we seen the washout, the clean out of sentiment, or are you still waiting for that big moment? No, I don't think so. I mean, we've been looking at uh, 30, 40 on the S&P, the 200-day moving average is something where we may see a little bit more of a line in the sand drawn. We've had a massive move in the last couple of days in equities, but it has only been two days of de-risking. We came into um, this last week with markets at all-time highs. Um, we wrote a piece at the start of this year where we highlighted some of the irrational exuberance, some of the stretched growth uh, valuations of growth stocks, the stretched valuation of equity markets generally. So a two-day correction, I don't think is nearly enough to wash out some of the positioning. A consensus has had it all beaten out of it over the last week or so. The V-shaped recovery, haven't heard much about that in the last 24 hours. Is that done, Dustin? Have we moved on from that? Um, I don't know, really. It depends how the data unfolds. It depends what happens with the virus. It depends what happens with the Fed. If you have if you have a situation where the virus does not impact the U.S. consumer, doesn't impact the U.S. labor market, and you get a reaction from the Fed, that's the type of environment that drives a V-shaped recovery. If the labor market or the U.S. consumer slow considerably, then I think we're in for a much kind of more sustained, turbulent Who, time. Who's suffering the biggest losses here? Because there was a story about how leverage at hedge funds ticked up dramatically right before the sell-off. I think it's not um, contained just in the hedge fund community. When we look at um, positioning statistics, whether it's kind of retail or leverage in terms of systematic strategies, institutional investors, it looks like the momentum and the rally that we've had over the last um, yeah, 10 years, but certainly the last six months or so, has drawn a lot of people into the equity market. So I think there's a lot of leverage, and that's why we've seen such a uh, kind of sharp reversal in the last couple of days. What are you looking for to determine catharsis? I think that really we have to see what happens in terms of the data, what happens in, in terms of the Fed. I think it's far too early to expect um, yep. equity markets to find a level. I think we're going to see some volatility over the next couple of weeks. Well, that was a public so. answer. I mean, give us the truth here. What are we going to see in terms of catharsis? What's the bet on the street right now? I mean, have people positioned given two difficult days down? I don't think two days is, is enough for positioning to wash out. So I think we're going to get much more volatility. You know, you mentioned that we're seeing the futures start to bounce a little bit, little bit this morning. We expect volatility. It's not going to move in a straight line. We could easily get kind of a decent up day, but that could easily be followed by another couple of down days. So I think we're going to see a lot more volatility before positioning washes out for this yeah. Final question, really, really quickly, March 18th. As things stand, your view right now, did the Fed go or do they wait? I think they're more likely to wait, but it's going to be data dependent. It's going to depend on the evolution of not just what happens in terms of the virus, the data, but also what happens in terms of markets. You sound like a Fed official. <laughs> Greg, great to catch up with you. Greg Battle there of BNP Paribas. He looks like a Fed official. <laughs> John Sebastian Jacques joins us now, Rio Tinto CEO. JS, fantastic to have you with us. Let's just get into the business in China straight away. What are the customers telling you right now? Yeah, good morning. First, um, as you said, China accounts for more than 50% of our turnover. So we spend a lot of time discussing to our Chinese customers and suppliers. We discussed with around 200 of those in the last 48 hours. Where, where the situation 
where the situation is today is there is clearly uncertainty. However, two things which is important from our perspective. One is all the books of Arnold, which is our main comedy, are full, and we are moving the product to China without any issues whatsoever. That's the first point. The second point is, if I take a more medium-term view and I look at the back end of this year, we have no doubt, and we've got all the signals that the Chinese government will implement the stimulus package. I've already started, and from past history, when the Chinese implement the stimulus package, <coughs> it's going to be pretty intense in terms of commodities, which could be a very good piece of news. Right. So, some uncertainty, no issues as we are having this conversation. But we acknowledge there could be uncertainty, and we are prepared for right. it. John, I want to cut to the chase, and there was a terrific Bloomberg opinion piece out on this earlier today. You got a seven percent yield. You've got massive dividend growth over the last five years. What is the elasticity of the responsiveness of the board to what you do with the dividend in the future? That's a very good question. But as you remember, in, 20, in early 2016, we have changed our policy to move from uh, to move toward the variable policy, and the policy is very clear: 40 to 60 percent of the underlying earnings through the cycle. In the last few years, we were always above the, the policy. And if you look what we have right. uh, declared yesterday, it's 60% of the earnings as per the policy, plus a special dividend of $1 billion, which was which would so, take us to 70%. So the elasticity is very clear. It's directly linked to the earnings. Okay, but I want to go to your science of years ago, and frankly, your mining engineering. What's your x-axis on the dividend? How many weeks, how many quarters of this shock, the supply shock, can you stand to keep Keep the dividend strong, or is there a point where you do have to change the dividend policy? I don't think we'll have a, an issue with the dividend policy per se because it's a variable policy. That's one aspect. Now, the second point, which is more important from a real standpoint, is if I look at the quality of my assets, which are low cost, which are the lowest uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the industry, plus the quality of my balance sheet, is I've got no issue whatsoever to continue to deliver super value for shareholders, as we've done for the last four years, because in the last four years, we have delivered 30, $36 billion of cash return to our shareholders. Right now, I'm looking at the inventories in China, and China's steel inventories have expanded to a record high uh, due to the disruption from the coronavirus and the halt in building. How much more do you think that iron ore prices have to drop here if the coronavirus is not contained in the near term? That's a very good question. I can't answer on prices, otherwise the lawyers would kill me as always, so I can't do that. However, <coughs> what is very interesting in the last few weeks, what the government or what the steel industry has done, they have shut down most of their EF converters, which are primarily scrap base in order to produce steel, but the blast furnaces which are using iron ore have, not, have only slowed down. And if you look at the volumes going into China, if you look at the inventory of iron ore at the port, they have not moved. And as I said today, my other books on iron ore are absolutely sold out, and I'm moving everything to China. Well, Jess, I think everyone would assume that's going one place, stockpiles, inventories, and it's not going to get deployed anytime soon. So let's talk about that. You're saying you're going to get stimulus out of China. What kind of stimulus? Where's it going to go? I think the stimulus will be slightly different from the past because, as I said, so far, the crisis in China is about services, about construction, about the, the, the back end of the manufacturing. They're going to have to support all those aspects of the economy. But I've got no doubt they will invest a little more or even more on infrastructure as they've done in the past because that's the best way for them to stimulus to stimulate the economy and it's completely rich. So second half of this year, I'm not too concerned. JS, always great to get your view. Fantastic to have you with us on the programme this morning. That's Jean-Sebastien Jacques, the Rio Tinto CEO, <laughs> joining us on the latest in China. 
We've got him on the phone, so we've got to go there. Folks, there are people that do medicine from a distance, and then there is someone like Mr. Whitworth. Jimmy Whitworth uh, is with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And John, without question, he has done the most in Africa. You can talk about it. You can put a piece of chalk in your hand and run a course on it, a lecture. And then there is the going and doing of it. And Jimmy Whitworth has done viruses like nobody else on the planet. Fantastic to have Jimmy with us now, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Professor of International Public Health. Professor, fantastic to have you with us. From the market's perspective, and I ask this question exclusively from the perspective of investors right now, there is a lack of faith in the ability to contain this virus, that perhaps this has broken out to Europe and beyond to the United States. Maybe it's already here. Professor, put that in some context. From your point of view, where are we? Well, thank you for that. And thank you for that fulsome uh, introduction. Uh, Very appreciative. Um, I think we're in a very uh, worrying situation at the moment. We have a situation, I think, where in China, with very heroic and strong public health measures, they have been able to get the outbreak there more or less contained. It's still going on, but it's not expanding at anything like the rate that it was, which is good. But the worry is that it has now spilled over into a number of other countries and regions in the world. So um, in the Middle East, we have this uh, focus in um, Iran, which is worrying because that's getting into countries which have uh, very poor health systems, places like Afghanistan and Pakistan. And we've got uh, an expansion of cases in Italy, which is also crossing borders and I think threatens Western Europe more more generally. And the thing is, this is an infectious disease. It does not recognize international borders and will spread wherever people move. What's the worst case scenario that you see as somewhat likely? Um, I think that there is sustained transmission that occurs all over the, the, the globe. I'm worried particularly about what might happen in sub-Saharan Africa, where not only have we got um, uh, weak health systems and surveillance systems and the like, yeah. but we also have people who have a lot of um, other infectious diseases, HIV and tuberculosis and so on, and it might well spread there. So it's really important that we put in the facilities that we can there. The stereotypes that we have, Professor Whitworth, are so strong. I mean, it goes back to 1871 and Stanley and Livingston in Africa. And, you know, some of us watched a Spencer, a Spencer Tracy movie long ago. Those stereotypes are embedded. And one is those viruses over there are more virulent than what we face. Do you know the virulency of this virus? Is it equivalent to what you've seen in Africa or is it a more common flu virus? I think there are two things to look at here. One is how transmissible it is, and secondly is how virulent it is. And those things sometimes go in parallel, but sometimes don't. And this is a virus where they don't. So I'd say this is uh, pretty highly transmissible. For every person who's infected, uh, on average between two and three other people will get infected from that person, if nothing is done. So that's, that's the challenge for public health authorities. In terms of its virulence, it isn't 
as bad as many other diseases. So something like 80 or more percent of people who are infected will have mild illness and will recover and will be no problem. But we have uh, 15 or 20 percent of people who are infected who get severe disease. These are people who need to be hospitalized and on average they're staying in hospital for something like 10 to 14 days, which is a long time and puts a big strain on health services. And of of all the people who are infected, one or two percent may die. Professor, it sounds absolutely tragic, and forgive me because we only have 30 seconds left, but why are the WHO not calling this a pandemic? Um, they say that that's an informal term. If people want to use it, that's fine. They do not formally declare pandemics. They've called it a public health emergency of international concern, and that's as high a level of severity as they go. Professor, thank you so much. Jimmy Whitworth was, we're just thrilled with their team's ability to bring in these true experts. Uh, Professor Whitworth with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, their professor of international public health, but he is really one of the world's axes on not just Ebola, but like four and five and six things I can't pronounce from Africa. He needs no introduction. Of course, he's in my work at Davos for years has been uh, important to Bloomberg surveillance. It is Rubini Macro Associate. It is New York University. And we're thrilled that Professor Rubini could join us uh, this morning. Noria, I'm going to cut to the chase. You are one of the great old world voices out there. Uh, your heritage of the Middle East and, of course, coming over to all your work in Italy years ago. Would you travel to Italy today? Uh, yeah, I would travel to Italy today, but I think that I would take with me a mask. Because, of course, uh, this uh, is a global pandemic uh, spread to Italy. And by the way, I worry about the fact that today the health ministers of Italy, Germany, France, EU said that the borders of Europe are going to remain open. If you think about it, in 2015, when there was this wave of uh, refugees, the Schengen Treaty was effectively blocked. You couldn't mm-hmm. go from country to country without checks. Today, we have a much more serious problem. There is that's going to spread from Italy to parts of Europe. And they say... Everything is fine. It's a bit of a paradox. Right. I, I want to parse between what all of our listeners and viewers know, which is supply-side economics, which is almost a theology. I don't want to get into the theory now. You've always pushed against that theory. And a supply shock within the geometry of basic economics. Have we ever seen in the modern day a supply shock like we're living right now? Well, there were supply shocks in the 70s when you had the oil shocks in 73 after Yom Kippur War, 79 Iranian Revolution, 1990 Iranian Iraq invasion of Kuwait. Those were shocks that reduced growth that increased inflation. So we had supply shocks were negative, but they were related to geopolitical shocks in the Middle East. This is a different type of a supply shock. It's still stagflationary, reduces growth, increases cost and inflation, uh, but it is a supply shock that is negative. So, Professor, up until two days ago, one could argue that the equity markets were kind of just shrugging off this coronavirus, where if you look at the commodity markets, we had some pretty significant pullbacks. You look at the bond market, yields uh, plunging to new lows. Even after the two-day sell-off we've had in the equity markets over the last two days, how do you think financial markets, are they properly discounting the risk associated to global GDP growth from this virus, potentially? Um, No, I don't think so for at least four reasons. Reason number one, this is a global pandemic. It's going to spread not only to Europe, but to Asia and even to the United States, like the CDC warned. That's going to be massive. Second, the idea there's going to be 
uh, a peak of the shock to the global economy being by the end of the first quarter doesn't make sense. If you think about supply chain shocks, trade channels, confidence, what's going to happen to CapEx, to consumer confidence, the impact is going to be into second quarter. Three, everybody said V-shape uh, recovery. Uh, that's all to also total utter nonsense. Uh, the Chinese economy is going to contract the annualized rate of at least uh, 2%, uh, annualized of 8 but uh, within the quarter of 2%. Even if there is a V-shaped recovery and grows 8%, that is well above the 6 of before the crisis, uh, you're going to have growth in China going this year from 6 to 4 if the V-shape means that uh, in the second and third and fourth quarter grows, goes back to 6%, with a shock to the first quarter, Chinese growth is going to be 2.5%. So the best we can expect from China is 4 at the most likely 2.5%, where now markets are estimating the Chinese goods are going to go from 6 to 5.5%. So markets are delusional, first about the impact on Chinese growth and the impact on the global economy. Final point, people hope that central banks or fiscal policy is going to come to the rescue. Fiscal policy, there is not much space, there are lags. And central banks are running out of bullets. Certainly BOJ, certainly the ECB, certainly oh, what's oh. happening right now in Japan, Italy implies okay. that not much that the ECB okay. can do. I, I know you're short listed for governor of the Fed here when the president gets through his next tranche of appointees. No worry, all to cut to I the I would chase. never take the job from Trump or any job from Trump. The, the, <laughs> None to, ever. No worry, all to cut to the chase. Yes. Kachalakota, a legit front-level yeah. mathematics economist, yeah. says cut rates now and a lot of other people, including the vice chairman, say uh, not. Yeah. What, what's the efficacy of a rate cut right now? Uh Whenever you have a negative supply shock that damages global supply chains, cutting interest rates is not going to make much of a difference. Of course, the market is going to rally on news of that cut or news that the cut is coming. But once then the economic spillover, the financial spillovers, and the other spillovers become severe, doing 25 basis points, even 50 basis points, but the Fed is not going to make any difference. And the problem right now is that the contagion, the pandemic is already in Japan, is already in Italy and Europe. And what's the room that BOJ and ECB have? Going to minus 60 for the ECB minus 20 for the BOJ and what 10 basis points, even 20 basis points of more negative rates is going to make in the face of a massive negative supply shock, close to nothing. Okay. So what do you think China needs to do, should do to support its economy given what's happened there? Well, you know, the intelligent Chinese economists say we already had this major shock. The worst thing we could do is another round of massive monetary, fiscal, and credit stimulus because every time there is a growth shock, they do another round of debt. There is more debt, more leverage, more overcapacity, and more economic damage that eventually leads to the risk of a financial crisis in China. So the sensible Chinese economists say, Unfortunately, there's a growth shock. Yes, we have to backstop those that have been hurt, provide maybe income relief, make sure that most firms, especially the smaller ones, don't go bankrupt. But that's the extent of the support we want to give. This is a negative supply shock. We'll have to accept the shock and the consequences of it and try to have a mild economic response. Okay, well, if you do more of that, then the risk is that that becomes unsustainable, what's even the in risk, China. What's the risk of helicopter money? I mean, Hong Kong today is going to trot out 10,000 Hong Kong, which, you know, is enough to get three drinks at the M bar at the Mandarin, great. But what, what's, is there efficacy to helicopter money, to true cash stimulus? Well, uh, whenever there's going to be the, global, the next global recession, I'm sure that uh, monetary policy and fiscal is going to become more unconventional and variants of helicopter drop of money, MMT, 
people's QE or what Bernanke or Stan Fisher and the folks at uh, uh, BlackRock suggest that is essentially variants of helicopter drop is going to be implemented. Right. My point is that if it's a demand shock, monetary and fiscal stimulus helps you. If you have a negative right. supply shock like the 70s, we did the monetary stimulus, we did the fiscal stimulus and we ended up with high debts and high inflation. Right. So even if you do the helicopter drop, it may not have yeah. as much of an impact in a situation which the shock right. is a negative supply rather than a negative yeah, demand yeah, shock. 20 seconds. You had an essay in the FT today. I haven't had time to read it. What'd you say? Cut the, you know, save me some time here in Oriel. Well, you know, four <clears throat> points that I briefly made. One, this what is a for, global what's pandemic. What's the key point right now? It's a pandemic. Uh, it's a global pandemic. The economic impact is going to be much more severe. It's not going to be a V-shaped recovery. Chinese growth is going to be at best 2.5%. The global economy is going okay. to slow sharply. And the okay. policy response is not going to make the difference. Okay. You look tanned and rested. Uh, I'm always tired of that. I always travel. I just came back from five weeks all over the world, but not in China. Very good. Nora Rubini, <laughs> uh, stay away from me. <laughs> With Rubini Associates, greatly appreciate it. What we're going to do right now, folks, is do politics, but try to do it in a different way. We're all exhausted by the, what is it, 24-7, 25-8 punditry and that we see there, the gaming of the polls, etc. And we thought we'd haul in here an academic that's not only spent time looking at the broader picture of the American political fabric, but actually has really delved into the machinery of politics. One of her great efforts is core concepts in American government. It is a real basic look at the basic process of what we do in politics. Uh, Ginny Zeno joins us right now from Iona College and, of course, a Bloomberg contributor here uh, this political season. Wonderful to have you here. So good to be here. You're wearing blue. Was that for the debate last night? <laughs> did, did red take the victory off the blue debate last night? No, you're right. I should be wearing purple or something that doesn't indicate some kind of partisanship. No, it was just the dress I found. How, how much did Mr. Trump uh, uh, win the debate last night? Uh, I ranked him as as one of the big winners last night. Um, the Democrats, you know, and this is not about the candidates necessarily, but this process does not work to the benefit of the Democratic Party or any of those candidates up there. And as a result, right. he continues to win. Is the salvation for everybody against the senator from Vermont just what you mentioned, which is the purpleness of Texas? the purpleness of California. I mean, is it go to Super Tuesday? Is that really the heart of the matter? Is the moderates have to find a, a way to actually get tangible votes? Well, the moderates have to get votes. There are moderates in the Democratic Party. They are the biggest contingent of the party. But what has to happen is you can't have five moderates running against Bernie Sanders because he will come away even with a plurality every time. Well, Jeannie, what are they going to do? Get into a room and decide who drops out? <laughs> I mean, let's get real. How does this work? Well, I think, you know, there's going to have to be pressure from the party that those moderates who are polling in the single digits leave the race. So I think Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, I mean, people I like enormously, but you can't keep doing this because what they're doing is they are, they care about the moderates winning this thing. They've got to get out of the race if right. you're not polling. You're blaming the process. Yeah. You don't think that there's anything that the candidates themselves could do at the debate to turn the attention in a positive way toward the Democrats. Is that the implication here? I think it's very, very tough given this process. You know, if, if we think about, you know, in a business, if you're hiring somebody for a job, and I always say to students, if you're hiring an 
an accountant and you say, I'm going to hire you if you run the fastest mile. That's essentially what we're doing. We're asking you to be president, but we're judging you on things that won't make you a good president. So there's a huge fissure within the way we hire for this job. But this has been the process for time and memoriam. Why is this time different? Um, it's not different. It's been the process since about the early 1970s. And we've long had for academics, this has long been the bane of our existence, that the way that we elect presidents. But it's gotten worse as we have moved towards in democratizing this process, quite frankly, and giving this thing over to primaries. People say, oh, primaries are democratic. Turnout is incredibly low in these primaries. You get the most extreme voters out there. They vote and you get the kind of chaos that we're seeing. And then you ask these people to do the impossible, which is get out on this stage and battle this thing out. Jenny, to what degree do you think this party is really failing to display a real showing of humility to understand what is actually going on here in the same way that the Republican Party did four years ago? That it's easy to sit here and say that Senator Sanders wouldn't make a good candidate for a whole variety of reasons, but failing to understand ultimately what he's tapping into here and tapping into a broader and broader base as this campaign goes on. Are we failing to do that? I think the Democratic Party, yeah, like like any party, has a lot of different components to it. And one of those is the base that Bernie Sanders is speaking to. But I would say the party has to look at the reality. The reality is this race will be decided in about six moderate states. You go to Florida and praising Fidel Castro is not a winning message to beat Donald Trump in, 20, in 2020. It's simply not. So he does have a base. The Democrats need to understand what is activating that base. But they also need to be realistic about how you win this thing in November but if Jeannie, they want to everyone who's voting should know that they should know that and I don't want to insult the base I don't want to insult the electorate of any kind you Democrat or Republican <laughs> but they understand that they're not idiots they should know that already but they're still voting for him and by the way if you look at the polls as you know they still think he's one of the better candidates to take on the president of the United States in November so the question is, we keep doing this. We keep failing to understand what is actually going on here. These are educated people voting for this man. I imagine many of them have college degrees. They know the situation in Florida, the relationship with Cuba. And yet they go to the poll in Nevada. They go to the polls in South Carolina and they vote for him. Yeah, but let's keep in mind, again, when you're looking at the primary vote, this is the most extreme members of both parties. So you get candidates. Let's be clear. Bernie Sanders is an independent. He's not even a Democrat, similar to Donald Trump. And so the party has lost control of this process long before 2020, by the way, well, and that will continue. But, but do they get back control once they get to an adult high, high money process like Super Tuesday? I mean, is it literally a jump condition? out of the vote in the next day everything's different for the party i don't think so i mean you know at this point i think if you're going to look at the numbers bernie sanders has the greatest chance to get the delegate count he needs to wrap this up without a contested convention i think that's the reality but let's be clear this is not just about the presidency it's about the house it's about the senate and it's about the part if you're a democrat it should be about the future of the party and this well, is where they well, have a problem i gotta say john i didn't think that there was a feeling of disrespect of bernie sanders last night it was more just saying he didn't get anything done i don't think that there was a sense of of a lack of no i'm talking about anything. the coverage i'm talking no, about I, the pundits the reflect I mean, on all I of this this party's had four years to prepare for this moment they squandered most of that four years chasing <clears> the president <throat> trying to impeach him and criticizing him every day well, you watch the same channels as i do the left-wing brigade go out there day yes. after day after the president and yet here we are and let me tell you if vice president joe biden was leading in nevada 
in New Hampshire, in Iowa. But we wouldn't be talking about the process this morning. Here's the problem. I would say that this, this is it, Tom. And I'm looking at this as what emerges from this debate. And it's the idea that you have on one hand electability and on the other hand the fact that people want change and trying to reflect that zeitgeist that you're talking about. And those two things are appealing to two very bifurcated segments oh. of the population. And that's what we're feeling coming out of these debates. Gina Zeno, when, when we look at this, I guess we've got to get uh, past the South Carolina vote. What do you predict on Monday or, for that matter, on Sunday next? I think the numbers show that probably Bernie Sanders has about a 40 to 50 percent shot at this point of getting what he needs. He did so well with the Latino vote, for instance, in Nevada. If he can replicate that in places like California and Texas, he can keep racking up the delegate lead. Obviously, Super Tuesday has about one third of the delegates up. Now, I would not predict what's going to happen, but I would say the probability is no. narrow that he is going to do OK. But again, it depends. Gina Zeno, thank you so much with Bloomberg Politics, of course, helping us here with Iona College. Right now, uh, nationwide, the wonderful congressman from South Carolina, Mr. Clyburn, is setting up his endorsement off of last night's debate. And, of course, he has huge influence with the African-American vote uh, in the state of South Carolina. We'll bring that to you when we see it. He's now introducing people with smiles around. One of the things that's going to change at the Walt Disney Company, Paul, is where they do the conference call with the sell side. (laughs) And I just want to say it's going to be great to see Michael Nathanson taking that call with a parks guy on Splash Mountain. Exactly right. I can see Nathanson going down that log tube on Splash Mountain. Buy, hold, or sell. (laughs) Michael Nathanson, Moffat Nathanson, founding partner and senior research analyst. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on the phone here. Boy, the news last night, I'll just speak for myself, took me by surprise. What do you make of uh, the news we heard? Yeah, Paul, Tom, good morning. Um, You're not alone. It took us all by surprise, right? You had an earnings call two weeks ago that I was on the radio with the guys two weeks ago talking about, and there's not another bit of news for a couple of weeks or months. So it was just weird that in the middle of February, they decided to to announce that change. And everyone's trying to figure out, like, why? What, What is significant about this timing? So we were surprised by the timing, but... You know, Bob had been very clear that his time was coming was coming up. That he was done with with this with this job, his his last contract. We thought there'd be a change, but probably later in the year. So it's really about the timing of the, of the change, the announcement of the timing, but wasn't the change itself. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about Bob Chapek. What do you, what do you know about him? Okay, so Bob Chapek is someone who has a long career at the Walt Disney Company. He works in home video when home video was really important to, the home vi- to Walt Disney. He works in consumer products, uh, and consumer products is a very, very important sec- uh, segment. It's highly profitable. And then he moved over to the parks business. And the parks business, for all the focus on ESPN, the, po- the parks business is the single biggest driver of Walt Disney earnings growth, right? It's about, the U.S. parks are about 30% of profitability. And the parks business, what Chapek did is he put through – a surge pricing like Uber, where they raise pricing during peak times and lower pricing dynamically during slow times. That never was the case. They would have one price for all seasons. Uh, so they put a lot of capital on the, in the ground. They built new new rides, new exhibits, and they really drove prices. Yeah. So he has a very long background there, and I think it's a, it's, it's a good choice. It's, it's a natural choice for me to see happen here. Is this a partition that this August company is comfortable with Walt Disney is the Bob Iger and Roy Disney will be the new gentleman. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, when, when Iger, Tom, when Iger was put in that role, no one really knew what to expect from, from Bob Iger, right? There was a lot of chatter about he was the wrong guy. You know, yep, he was, you know, there was a book written, there was a book written all about Sweeney. You know, Sweeney the, wrote a four page research report, a long <laughs> report at that time. Yeah. I think he downgraded it on, on the Bob Iger <laughs> higher, right? Right, Paul? Exactly. It, you know, um, so Tom, we don't know. I, I think what Disney has become is there are these centers of content excellence that, you know, will live on, you know, when, when Bob Iger is gone, right? You've got Pixar, Marvel, oh, it's, Star it's Wars, incredible. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and the question is, you know, does every vertical have a leader with the right vision game plan? And I, and I kind of think that, that where they are now is they made a lot of tough decisions. They moved into to digital distribution. They took profitability down. I almost think like they just need to pretty much be able to pivot and adjust their models when they see things change. So, so that content creation to me is now pushed out to the, the brands themselves and Bob, Bob Iger was a great capital allocator in deciding where to go. But I don't think one person could actually run this company the way you used to be run it. Yeah, that's what I think. So, Michael, let's talk about what the big pivot for the Walt Disney Company really over the last couple of years has been towards streaming. That's kind of the future of the company. And right. that got a lot of investors and just watchers thinking that the guy who runs that business, Kevin Mayer, would be probably the most likely to get the nod. What do you think happened there, and what kind of signal does this send, and what do you think of what Kevin's future might be within the company? Yeah, Paul, that's a really good good question. Um, you know, After the last quarter where they put up 25, 28 million subs you know, in one quarter, roughly half of Netflix in a quarter, you wow. Know, wow. the speculation was like, hey, Kevin is now in pole position. But, you know, the parks and tour products are a big driver of this company. Kevin's just started out operationally for the past one or two years. Um, I think JPEG represents more of the legacy Disney business. And, you know, the parks business is a DTC business, right? You know, parks is the only business at Disney before DTC was built that actually knew the customers. You know, they had credit cards on, on, on Thomas family, right? Like that, that is, that's the only business that actually knew yeah. who was walking in the door. So I think he has more DTC than meets the eye. What is really DTC? Direct, Direct to consumer. To consumer. <laughs> it's oh, okay. Yeah. So Tom, it's 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 the ability to to identify you and your family, <sighs> and then right. market and upsell you. And and the parks, right. you know, has proven that year in year out, they can take money okay. out of your pocketbook better than anybody. Here's my experience on Disney. One of the the middle child used to go to lacrosse camp down there for a quote unquote week, and then I figured out a week was four and a half days. That's a Disney. Yep. That's a Disney model, Paul. So Michael, four and a half day week. <laughs> Michael, what do you think the legacy will be for Bob Iger? Well, it's funny. Years ago, a couple of years ago, I remember Tom and I sat down, and he was like, Tom said to me, "Is this a Jack Welch legacy? Right? Does he? Does whoever gets this hand after Bob?" just never rise. You know, the, the legacy of, of Welch just shattered everyone. I, I think the legacy of Iger, you know, is and will be incredibly strong, right? For a person who basically was courageous in doing the right thing for the company, not for the short term, but for the long term, his his acquisitions, which you could go like Tom and Paul, I'm on the record when he bought Pixar and Marvel, we yeah. scratched our head. We're like, <clears throat> the ROI doesn't work. So the, I think the legacy of this is a guy who courageously built the company into what it is today. He took down earnings to pretty much build it going forward by investing in direct-to-consumer businesses. I think his legacy is going to yeah. be great. I really do. I think, he'll, you know, and I'm sad because it's one of the 
the true legends in our industry, and right. you know, he was a spokesperson for all of media, and that spokesperson is gone. How much work do they have on the integration with the Fox properties? A lot of work, Tom, and that's that's why the timing is interesting because that integration needs to get done. Uh, the Fox assets on the studio side, the film studio, have been very disappointing. They have a business in India, Star, very important, and they want to roll out Disney and in Disney Plus in India. There's a lot of integration to be done, and that deal's less than a year old. So that's why the timing to Paul's first question is surprising, because integration's key right now well, for that Fox. I, I'm confused. I mean, like, I get the idea of movies don't matter, but then you just said they do matter because Fox has been disappointing. Yeah. Are movies profitable? Oh, for Walt Disney Company, Disney has $3 billion of, of EBITDA. They were... You know, in a, in, a, in a studio business, they had 11 billion of, of box last year. You know, they are the only company that actually prints money consistently in the film business. So if you ask me about other yeah. film studios, they don't matter. Mm-hmm. But at Disney, the film studios then spin out consumer products. They spin right. out rides. They spin out well, consumer businesses. They do matter for Disney. I mean, I mean, people like they got they got vet bill at home. His hair done up like Baby Yoda, and <laughs> you know, like Mandalorian or whatever it's called. What is that property actually worth? I mean, if that's Iger's swan song here in creative, that's been a home run, hasn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, we don't know how many of those subs that signed up for Disney Plus were there for the Mandalorian, right? But. But if you think about, they paid four billion for Star Wars, for for Lucasfilm, four billion for Marvel. Um, you know, the Mandalorian is going to be a subset of four billion, but those assets drive engagement, right? That's they realized in a cluttered media world, having those brands stand out. They don't they drive work. engagement; they change the hair on the damn dog. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that, hey, Michael, that, last that, question. <clears throat> Just yeah. you know, the stock's been under pressure. I think coronavirus getting a lot of uh, uh, play there at the Walt Disney Company. Frame out how you're viewing it. Uh, the impact on their theme parks and their other businesses. Well, Paul, a couple of weeks ago in the more in the early morning hours, I spoke to to Tom and John, and we talked about coronavirus. And that point, it was restricted to China. So I made the maybe the two you know two quick remarks saying, look, you know those theme parks don't represent more than three percent of the profitability of the Walt Disney Company. So I'm not worried about Chinese parks. Well, Japan's another park that you know creates you know earnings growth, and so does the U.S. business, which is the biggest you know one of the biggest drivers. So as the fear spread, I do worry that in the short run, you're going to have <clears throat> negative earnings revisions mm-hmm. in, in the U.S., people not wanting to travel. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my first rule of thumb in, in media is earnings revisions drive stocks. So in the short run, this coronavirus right. fear is, is, a, is a huge headline risk for this company. They're the only ones right. in media that have that risk, unfortunately. Michael, thank you so much. Michael Nathanson with us with Moffitt Nathanson. Wonderful to have him on. Again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. You can get his important report on Disney through Moffitt Nathanson. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.